following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. asking you to listen as I excerpt only two portions of this relatively long chapter. It tells a familiar tale, so I can count on you, most of you, filling in some of the things I don't read. But here is David now. He's been anointed. If you were with us last time, that happened privately. People didn't know that he was anointed the king. He isn't parading around as a prince in the land. In fact, between singing songs in the court of Saul He's also back at his shepherd's job. So David is still in a rather humble station. When the army of Saul went out to fight their perennial enemies, the Philistines, and David was sent, we find, to go and take some food to his brothers. I'm going to excerpt this beginning at 1 Samuel 17, verse 4. There came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head and was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now I'm skipping where David makes an appearance. He gets a lecture from his older brother for daring to question why somebody wouldn't fight the Philistine. I want to just touch on verse 26, a key word when David says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? that he should defy the armies of the living God. Skipping down again, David says he will fight. Saul first remonstrates, but then lets him go and says, take my armor. And here's David defending his position to Saul, verse 36. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over the armor, tried in vain to go, 
for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. He took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. The Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord, Lord's, and he will give you into my hand. The Philistine arose, came near to meet David, and David ran to the battle line to meet the Philistine. He put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead, and the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of the sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. May God speak through this, his own holy word today. I say to you as we begin with this passage that it is always tempting to overestimate the size and strength of your obstacles and to underestimate the power of the Lord God to conquer them. Ten days ago, I attended my last meeting in a 12-year span that I have spent happily as a trustee of a well-known theological seminary. I've enjoyed being part of that work, but I've decided to step aside from it for a while to concentrate more on all of you. But I've been proud to serve an institution that long has been known for its fidelity to the Word of God and for its excellent scholarship. But this service has taught me that fidelity to the Word and upholding the authority of God's Word is not necessarily a popular thing in our world today. And in fact, along with my fellow trustees and the administration, we found out that some of the most painful battles you can possibly be engaged in is with other people who would claim that they too uphold the authority of the Word of God. One reason that made me sad to be stepping aside right now is that that institution is engaged in another struggle with Goliath-like bellowing coming from the blogospheres. You know what a blogosphere is? Ask somebody. I'm not going to take time to explain it. But it's a place where anybody can chip in and have a theological discussion, whether they know what they're talking about or not. That's a blogosphere. 
Today we have folks who want to say that those who try to take more stringent measures to hold up the authority of the Word of God in all ways in the teaching of an institution have got something wrong with them. Their ethics need to be questioned. Their character needs to be slandered. And I'm proud to wear those slanders as I depart from that board of my fellow servants there. These are folks who tell us that they want to also be called evangelicals, which used to mean a high view of the Word of God. And yet they will compromise openly with the teachings of evolution. Adam wasn't a real person. He's only a symbol. They'll tell us that humanism and various sexual mores of the Scriptures have got to be changed. They'll tell us that they can deconstruct plain sense of passages of Scripture, that Luther and Calvin were wrong about justification. And those who would say differently on the conservative side are roasted on their spit. It's strange that warfare over the full authority of Scripture has to be waged as it is. But one thing I was proud of my fellow trustees and administration that we decided 10 days ago, that we are not going to fight that battle wearing Saul's armor. We are not going to go on the blogosphere and malign the character of others who've maligned our character. That to do that would be exactly like going out against Goliath and saying, hey, Goliath, let's arm wrestle. That's not going to succeed. The final outcome of many battles we fight are spiritual because the battle itself is spiritual and the result must be entrusted to God. That, I think, is very much at the center of what we want to talk about today here in this familiar tale. Of course, the story of David and Goliath is well known. You hear it in Sunday school as a child, and sadly, perhaps many people think it's some kind of a child's story. It's actually a very grim story. As Goliath's head, I didn't go quite that far, but you can see Goliath's head ending up on a pike and Philistine bodies laying all over the ground as this was a really bloody battle that was won. But this is a text that is not a fable or a myth. It's anchored in real history. If you read about David taking food to his brothers there, I skipped that part, but it tells how many cheeses and loaves of bread he took. The details of reality are all over this. It really happened. And the difficulty with this story is that quite often it's turned into kind of a, a, moral, a moral play, you might say, where people would say, well, this is about having courage against obstacles. And if you're just courageous like David, God will let you conquer. So this is about standing up to the playground bully or maybe standing up to the tyrannical boss at work or the abusive husband. But strangely enough, I don't find David's courage being applauded that much in this. What I do find is him upholding and believing in a great God and the reputation of that God, and in fact, being the only one who saw the real issue of the day, that the honor of God was being maligned and trampled on, and it had to be defended. I believe the correct theme of 1 Samuel 17 can, is telling us that when the honor of the Lord God means more to you than just defending your own skin, there are actually few limits on how the Almighty God might use you 
as a warrior in his cause. First of all, I would ask you to see this, that there were actually two monsters being faced by David in the Valley of Elah in this long-ago day. Now, just give you the background for the first monster, whose name was Goliath. Way back when Moses spent, sent spies out into the land of Canaan to see what kind of a place it was, those spies came back and said, hey, folks, there are giants in that land. And a lot of people, of course, were very frightened by that. Numbers 13 tells of that. These were the sons of Anak. And we find even later on when Joshua went into Canaan to take the land as God had promised, these people were there. They were called Anakim, the sons of Anak. This whole tribe lived in the coastal area and became the Philistines. They were people of rare stature, huge men. Now, I looked this up, and I find that the tallest American on record ever was Robert Wadlow of Illinois, born in 1922. Sadly, he only lived about 24 years. There's a picture of Robert Wadlow I could find with his father. His father was a man of six feet. He looked like a midget because the top of his head barely went above his son's belt buckle. Robert Wadlow was 8 feet 11 inches tall. Interestingly, that is almost exactly the height in biblical measurements that we have here for Goliath, right around 9 feet. So if you think that's impossible for a man to be 9 feet tall, there was one, and he lived in Illinois in the 20th century. 9 feet tall. 1 Samuel 17 almost lets you feel the thud of Goliath's size 28 or 30 or 32 boots as he thudded along the ground and boomed out his curses. It gives you the weight of his spear point and his armor. You're supposed to be awed that there could be a person with a 20-pound point, iron point on his spear. You just try to imagine the damage that would do to a human being. And obviously, There was no warrior who could even imagine facing him, let alone killing him. But not only is Goliath presented here as a real-life killing machine and a great threat physically, he stands for that arrogant unbelief which perpetually loves to mock God and reject the sovereign rule of God. Now, Goliath is the first monster we're talking about that David faced. And you say, why am I saying there are two monsters that David had to oppose? Because the second one was something that Goliath set off as a kind of chain reaction, and that's the fear and intimidation that was cast over all the people because of him and his taunting, which, by the way, he did morning and evening for 40 days. You could set your watch by him. He was out there bellowing, twice a day, every single day. No battle started. Apparently, they just remained in their respective camps, the Philistines and the Israelites, and listened to Goliath bellow. But intimidation and fear crept into the hearts of the Israelites. You can sense it in verses 28 and 29 when David's older brother Eliab gives him an older brother's lecture. Here comes younger brother saying, hey, how come you guys are putting up with this? And Eliab tore into him. And you could tell he was a man whose nerves were on edge by what he'd been listening to for quite some time. Long ago, before the memory of at least most of us could recall it, President Roosevelt 
addressed our country in a time of great economic depression. And the famous line that still rings down from his presidency is that line that said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. That might have been said here because the camp of Israel was more affected by the radiating waves of intimidation that had set in than they were by just this one man who probably started it. You know what? I think that Christians in the land today are somewhat in a similar condition. We seem to be afraid that we're the minority. Well, what else is new? We've always been the minority. We seem to be afraid that suddenly a government that once at least gave a benign nod in our direction now is almost openly hostile to many things we believe. We seem to be afraid that those who disagree now rise up with bitter voices and sarcasm and and vicious arguments to attack, not simply to turn the other way. We seem to be afraid that in the family of nations in the world, you know, we're still the superpower as far as military things go, but there seem to be plenty who are ready to take us on and behead our citizens and do all kinds of things. Very Goliath-like behaviors going on out there from places originating in places like Tehran and Syria and Moscow and Baghdad and you name it. It's a day for Christians to sense fear and be dominated by it. If we are indeed dominated in our imagination by things like this, it suddenly, over a period of time, becomes all that we can see or hear. All that we can think about is what's aligned against us, who's criticizing us, who's attacking us. And it almost blots out our sight of the ever-faithful providential hand of God that is ever at work on behalf of His people and His church. Monsters that oppose the glory and honor of the only true God with threats and curses and slanders need to be put out of commission or at least banished from our minds so that Goliath doesn't move in the living room and dominate our life. Well, secondly, I want to tell you here in 1 Samuel 17, there are two weapons in the arsenal of faith that David made use of. Now, you would say his weapon was a sling. Let's speak about that for a minute because that's not one of the two. But David did have a sling made of leather cords, probably maybe a wooden handle, and some stones. It even tells us how many stones he picked up. The sling obviously was a poor man's weapon. It wasn't a spear or a bow and arrow or a sword, but it certainly was not a child's toy, as you might think. There are archaeologists who study ancient weapons and and practice the use of them and try to find out, well, just what were more ancient people capable of with these weapons. And it has been found that a skilled user of a sling can toss a stone at speeds in excess of 100 miles an hour. Now, if they can find a major league pitcher who can do that, I'm claiming him for the Red Sox. You Phillies fans can't have him. 100 miles an hour? You may have some idea what a fastball striking an unprotected head can do at 100 miles an hour. A stone, smaller missile, hitting a forehead, whether it's a giant's forehead or your forehead, or my forehead, is going to make a significant dent. 
And yet that sling of David's was not really the weapon. It was almost incidental. Because you see, it's not the physical battle that really counted here that much. It's the spiritual battle. There were two weapons I want to describe for you that David made use of here. The first was his great zeal for the reputation of the true God. When he got to the camp, his question that he asked in 1726 of his brother was, and by the way, that's the first time David speaks in 1 Samuel. We've been introduced to him in a chapter earlier, but he didn't speak. The first thing he says of all the words of David recorded in Scripture, now he spoke before this, but we don't have it recorded, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The very first thing he's recorded speaking is an expression of his zeal for the reputation of the one true God. And in so many words, David was saying, wait a minute, I'm not the only worshiper of God in this camp. Why aren't all of you worked up about this? Why are you sitting there and simply letting this man, this ungodly blasphemer, malign and slander the name of your God? You see, David wasn't concerned about the weight and size of Goliath's spear point. He was concerned about the weighty glory of God and about speaking for that. After all, here's this shepherd. He'd had a rather lonely life living out with his flock in the hills. Psalm 91 says, while he was doing that, he dwelt under the shadow of the Almighty. And he said, God, you are my refuge and my fortress. He sang songs of praise to God as he was out there in the natural creation. And he wasn't just looking around saying, oh, aren't the stars pretty? And gee, the hills look nice at sunset. He was saying, praise the mighty God that made all this. And it never occurred to David, since God was the dominating reality of his young life, it never even occurred to him that there should be a mere man, and a man with an overactive pituitary gland, by the way, who could come out and say, I defy the living God. David said, how ridiculous. Don't you people, the army of Saul, see how ridiculous this is? But you see, it came from his conscious mindfulness of living under the sovereignty of God and honoring God day by day, filling his mind with thoughts of God so that while Saul's army thought about how large Goliath was, David only thought about how large God is. And he looked at Goliath and said, who is this puny dishonorable fool spouting away out there. He was indignant that anyone should compare this man. How dare this blasphemer criticize the wonderful creator God who made our world and led Israel out of captivity? You know, I I almost had a late uh, change of heart on the title of this sermon today, but I, I held back. I didn't do it. But I'll tell you what I was going to retitle the sermon. I was going to call it David and the Dwarf because I think that would be a right title. David was standing there asking himself out loud in the presence of his brothers and other warriors, what giant? I don't see a giant. God is the only giant I can see. That midget out there is nobody. He's a badly confused 
spiritual dwarf. Do you see what a difference a God-centered worldview that exalts the supreme God makes when you come up against a crisis like this? And unless we cultivate by daily awareness in prayer and in the Word of God His complete supremacy over all circumstances, we will be thinking like and acting like the army of Saul when we have every right to act as David did. Now, secondly, his other weapon is this, an implicit trust in God's ability to overcome any odds. David was only concerned about, am I right here? Am I saying things according to the truth? Am I acting according to truth? If I am, then I won't worry about how big the odds look against me. I'll stand on what God leads me to do. And you see, he applies the logic of his past life when he had had to fight a bear and a lion to protect his his shepherd's flock. And he says, look, the Lord was with me. I probably shouldn't have won those battles, but I did. And if the Lord could drive off a lion or kill a bear at my hand, why can't I trust him today? Is this such a big thing that I can't trust him now after all he's already done? And Christian, I ask you that. If you think something terrible is stacked up against you and God can't possibly deal with it, have you thought about what he's already done for you? We've sung hymns already this morning about Christ leaving the throne room of heaven's glory to come and be a baby on earth. We, we could speak about his perfect obedience to the Father, his shouldering human guilt on the cross, his rising from the tomb to break the bands of death. And we as Christians need to be reasoning all the time, look what God has already done. Is there anything too hard for him? Is the challenge that's before me or before the American church or the church universal a harder challenge than what God already accomplished on behalf of his people in this world? Infinitely more has been done on our behalf than you can ever ask of him to do for you today. I would suspect there were some soldiers of Saul that were probably ribbing David's brothers and saying, hey, what, what is it with that kid brother of yours? Is he drunk? You'd have to be drunk to go out there and face that guy. Well, I want to say to you there's a sense in which David was drunk. He was intoxicated with God. Do you ever think about being God intoxicated? So filled with the power of God that human restraints really don't matter that much? David was drunk on the immensity and the immediacy of the Lord, his God, and his whole imagination and his faith was not Goliath-dominated. It was God-dominated. And the question is, are we anything like him? Can we be like him in the big challenges and the fearsome things that we face? Can we have great zeal to uphold the honor of the true God and trust in God's ability to overcome any odds? We must resist using the weapons of the world. I could go on quite a while, and I don't have the time to talk about David refusing Saul's weapons. There's a big lesson there. There's a way to fight things when God's honor is at stake. It's to give the battle to the Lord and to do it His way. You know, I tried on a coat not long ago, and 
had uh, just gotten a, a size off the rack and it was a long. Well, I don't need a long. My body is not a long body, okay? And I tried on this coat and here's what the sleeve looked like. There was no hand. I said to my wife, I'll be good if my hand at least stuck out of the sleeve. So I didn't buy that coat, of course. That was David in Saul's armor. He looked ridiculous. The sword was, how do I pick this thing up? He didn't know how to use it. He wasn't a trained swordsman. He said, I'm not going to fight Goliath on his level. I'm not going to go on the blogosphere and, and tell the world what a bad bunch of people those guys are who are opposing me. That's not God's way to fight. The greatest battle we fight will not be won as we out-argue, out-muscle, out-spend, or out-shout our opponents. That doesn't mean we do nothing, but it means that we know the battle is spiritual in nature and the armaments will come by the Word of God and by His Spirit and especially by prayer. The giants of our culture may bellow and curse and say that the day of God and Christ in an understanding that He has expressed Himself in Holy Scripture is bygone. You can't think those things anymore. Those who say that are not giants. They're dwarfs. Dwarfs when measured beside the awesome worthiness and divine majesty and supernatural power of the one great and true God. And you have to think sometimes for yourself, is my mind Goliath-dominated or God-dominated? It makes all the difference. And whether you would be able to say what David said here in verse 47, this assembly needs to know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or spear, the battle is the Lord's. When the honor of his reputation means more to you than simply defending your own skin, there are very few limits on how God can use you. Do not go away saying 1 Samuel 17 is a lesson about courage. We just need to be courageous like David. Nobody said here that David was courageous. What is said here, David had zeal for the Lord his God. And he acted upon it in the little way that he was able to act. And I say to you that whenever the Lord your God and Christ your Savior are being trampled upon, you need to draw a line in the sand and take a stand. And if there happens to be a small sling in your hand, it may even be that God will use that for his glory. The battle belongs to him. Our Father... I don't know where the battles are for folks here. Some battle against unbelief. They think that Christian faith is outmoded and needs to change itself, adapt itself to the world. Some are battling a weakness of faith, and they have friends and relatives directly attacking them. And they just want to withdraw and get away. Would you give your people a great zeal for your name and a great faith in your ability to do things we do not expect and help us in this day of battle to honor you in all that we do for Jesus' sake.
Amen.